Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Vedant Reddy. And I'm Justin Ongshin. Today we're sitting down with Professor Timothy Fry, the Marshall D. Shulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy at Columbia University. He has a bachelor's in Russian language and literature from Middlebury College, including a master's of international affairs and a PhD in political science from Columbia. Professor Fry is an expert on comparative politics and political economy in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and is the author of many critically acclaimed books, such as Brokers and Bureaucrats, Building Marks in Russia, which won the 2001 Hewitt Prize from the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies, Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Depolarized Democracy, which won a Best Book Prize from the APSA Comparative Democratization Section in 2010, and most recently, The Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Professor Fry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So just to get right into it with the current state of affairs in the world, what do you think are the main reasons relating to Putin or not relating to Putin that Russia invaded Ukraine? It's a good question. Uh, my sense is that this was a decision really taken by Putin himself personally, in that many of the elite are fairly skeptical about the advantages of invading in Ukraine. And public opinion in Russia uh, was not supportive of an invasion uh, of Ukraine. But Putin, I think, seeing uh, the possibility to gather more lands for Russia and add to his legacy as a ruler of Russia by expanding its territory, saw this as an opportunity that uh, he did not want to pass up. Putin has long had, uh, some might call an obsession uh, with Ukraine, that even many of his colleagues who are also very critical of the West uh, do not share. So I think this is really Putin's decision to launch the war, driven by his desire to try to cement his historical legacy. I think other factors, uh, such as uh, the possibility that Ukraine might join NATO, are play a much uh, weaker role. And I think Putin saw that Ukraine was drifting towards the West not in a military sense, but in a cultural, in a political, in an economic sense, um, that would have made bringing it back into the Russian sphere of influence that much more difficult in the future. So he decided to strike while the iron was hot. And, and you said, um, kind of, at least initially, right, that um, Putin did not have you know, public favor, the public opinion on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, um, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of propaganda that is being spread mm-hmm. um, currently. I was wondering, um, you, are you from, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with the book 1984. I was, I, I was wondering to what extent you believe that Russia today um, in its current state is, is like 1984. Well, it, it's, the Soviet Union was much more like uh, uh, 1984 in that you had state organizations and party organizations that could penetrate every sphere of people's lives, be it their social lives, be it their work lives, lives in university. Uh, Russia is not like that, in that the state is, in many respects, uh, weak and doesn't have the tentacles in Russian society in the same way that we see uh, in in George Orwell's book. Mm -hmm. 
Also, propaganda plays a big role in contemporary Russian politics. Uh, but in 1984, um, the country is walled off from any kind of outside influences. And that's not the case for Russia. Uh, what makes Russia an interesting case is that, yes, there is the government propaganda. Um, and there are, is a certain segment of the Russian population that trusts state media. But there are also competing narratives from international sources, from people having traveled abroad that Putin has to deal with, uh, that the rulers in the totalitarian state uh, uh, did not have to deal with, in part because the countries were much more sealed off uh, from the outside world, whereas Russia is much less so. Uh, so yeah, I think Orwell was reading, really writing about the Soviet Union and the parallels to the current Russia case. There are some there, but they're relatively weak. And what are the ways do you believe that Putin is kind of attempting to stop this international international perspective or, you know, anti anti war um, sentiment that's coming coming from outside of Russia's borders? So Putin has cracked down on uh, independent media closed uh, uh, non-governmental organizations that protect human rights, like Memorial, an organization that recently won uh, a Nobel Prize. It was a remarkable organization that collected data on human rights abuses in the Soviet period and in the contemporary period. Uh, Putin has also closed on opposition newspapers um, to make it more difficult for uh, Russians to hear alternative points of view. Uh, Russians can still travel, um, but those opportunities are much limited since the war started. Uh, so Putin has done a great deal to use state television, state media to try to promote Russia's version of events, uh, often using much cruder propaganda than prior to the war. Um, uh, and it's unclear how successful he is able um, to be in part because Russians can see uh, the economic damage that is being done by the war and by the sanctions. They can see Russian soldiers coming home killed or maimed. Uh, and Russians have been exposed to propaganda for decades and are actually pretty good at reading between the lines. Mm. So propaganda is a very powerful tool for setting the agenda, uh, but people have agency too, and they may buy some parts of it and reject others. Uh, so it's not an all-purpose tool the way it's often portrayed. Right, right. That makes sense. That's very interesting. And building off of this topic of propaganda, um, a lot of important academics seem to think that Hitler's rise to power was of course, propaganda and state control were massive parts of it, but they seem to attribute a lot of it to it just being facilitated by public opinion matching Hitler's ideologies. How much of that do we see in Russia today? So I've done some research on this, and Putin is a genuinely popular leader. Uh, in his first 10 years in office, the size of the economy doubled. That tends wow. to make politicians popular. <laughs> right. uh, there was a massive inflow of dollars from gas and oil sales that the Putin administration managed fairly well. Uh, 
And this raised all boats. Poverty fell from around 29% to around 14% during this period. Um, so Russians remember that period, and this was Putin's first decade in office as a period of relative prosperity. After 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, uh, Putin's popularity soared again for about four years. Uh, bloodless expansion of Russian territory in an emotionally charged uh, uh, part of the, uh, of the, the country. Um, you know, it had a big impact on Putin's popularity. Um, however, since 2018 or so, uh, Putin has struggled to find ways to demonstrate to the ordinary Russians that he's doing things to make their life better. The economy has been stagnant for a decade. COVID hit Russia very hard and was not well managed. Corruption remains a really big problem. And many Russians, uh, even as they support Putin, recognize that many problems remain uh, even on uh, his watch. So um, the Putin's popularity is an important way that it helps him stay in power. And he's very concerned about it. So the times when his uh, approval ratings have dipped, he's taken steps to try to bring them uh, back up again. And now I think he's facing his biggest challenge because the mobilization of ordinary Russians to fight in a war that they're not crazy about mm -hmm. really risks denting his popularity in a way like nothing else we've seen before. How has the war affected his uh, approval rating? So the, the approval rating soared in the immediate aftermath of the war in a typical rally around the flag uh, sentiment that we see in a lot of countries. Typically, when countries go to war, before the casualties start rolling in, uh, governments are able to uh, rally uh, people around the flag. And it's very difficult to criticize the war effort. Huge uh, nationalism. Huge effort. nationalism, yeah. that's right. Um, what we see now is people paying less attention uh, to the war. We're seeing splits between younger people, uh, who people under 40, who um, as many support the war effort as do not, uh, whereas the population over 60 is still very strongly supportive of the war effort. Um, so the, the war has risked the fragmentation in Russian society that Putin had managed to avoid for a very long time. Um, so it is, I think, the most challenging time for Putin's rule. And you mentioned kind of um, dropping approval ratings. How would, could you paint the picture of what it would look like if, you know, perhaps there's a, like a, a figure or like a point where, you know, his approval ratings drop so low and perhaps um, citizens, you know, mobilize? What, what, what would that look like to kind of overthrow him or replace him or like just stop listening? What, so he is an autocrat, right? We can't forget that, that he doesn't need the support of 50% plus one uh, like in a democracy. And many autocrats have stayed in power uh, even as they were unpopular with large portions of the population using repression and censorship uh, and fear. Uh, but it's much easier to rule as a popular autocrat than as an unpopular one. Right. So if you want to get people to do things, if you're popular, 
um, it's easier to get them to do things in part because they think it's harder to um, uh, replace you. Whereas if your popularity falls and you have to rely more on repression in order to get things done, it's just harder to make the economy grow, to make the trains run on time, uh, to, uh, to increase your own power. Um, and Putin has been unique among Russian politicians in that he is very popular and any potential rivals have much lower levels of popularity. Right. So this separates him from all of the other Russian elites. But if his popularity were to fall mm -hmm. uh, down to their level, he becomes uh, just you know, one other uh, a Russian elite who um, may struggle to um, resolve the intra- elite conflicts that inevitably come up, to resolve demands made by the public when things don't uh, quite go right. So it would be much more difficult to govern even before you know, the possibility of an elite coup or the masses mobilizing and trying to remove him. And, and I'd imagine that you know, the aristocratic elite is, is super important to Putin and, and, and his power. And, and you know, given the economic, uh, negative economic consequences of the war, what what are the you know Russian elite thinking? And so the the Russian economic elite that have extensive ties in the global economy have suffered dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, many of them have lost billions of dollars. Right. Uh, their uh, companies have basically been uh, ruined. They're barred from traveling uh, to places uh, uh, where previously they uh, enjoyed, like the south of France and Miami and. Uh, uh, some of their super yachts have been taken away. Uh, so you might think that this would give them an incentive to try to oppose Putin, but the risks of opposing Putin and failing are great. It's better to be alive than not alive. Right. And if you were to try to organize a revolt against Putin and if it were to fail, uh, you might end up seeing a jail cell at best uh, uh, for a long period. So there's great fear even among those who have suffered tremendously from the war. There's another group of, of, of Russian elites, though, that are largely insulated from economic sanctions and the global economy, who are rooted in the security services. Mm -hmm. And they've been sanctioned for a long time. They know that they have no future outside of Russia. And they're a much more difficult group to try to sway uh, because foreign, foreign uh, governments have much less uh, sway over them, much, many fewer levers to try to influence their behavior. And if the regime goes down, they're likely to go down with the ship. Right. I'm glad you brought up power dynamics because I've always wondered about how the power is distributed in Russia. Because I think that the main players would be one, Putin, of course, two, the general public, three other government officials, and four members of the aristocratic class, mm -hmm. the wealthy oligarchs. So mm -hmm. if you had to like draw a pie chart, how would you distribute it amongst these four? So the, what I argue in uh, Weak Strongman is that the problem that autocrats face is they can be overthrown by an elite coup, by guys with guns or by you know, business people who organize, uh, or they can be overthrown by mass mobilization. Right? And what... The problem Putin faces is that it's difficult to resolve both of those problems at the same time. Typically, if you devote more resources to keeping the public happy, 
you're taking resources away from your elite cronies and from the, the state organizations. Or if you allow the elites to steal uh, as much as they would like, you risk the economy tanking, and then you risk the possibility that the masses take to the street. So Putin walks this fine line between trying to keep the elites happy uh, while also trying to keep the uh, masses from mobilizing. And it's easy to do when the economy is booming, uh, as when oil prices were really high. But when oil prices are low and sanctions are kicking in, he has to make very difficult choices about which groups to favor. And for the moment, he continues to favor the, the oligarchs and to use repression to try to keep people off of the streets. Uh, but at some point, you know, the money needed to satisfy these two uh, groups uh, uh, becomes scarce. And that's the tricky position he finds himself in. When do you think there's... When do you think this is going to happen when the money becomes like too scarce? Well, it already is becoming scarce in that the kind of largesse that Putin could deliver um, is shrinking. The economy is uh, will fall by about three to five percent this year, uh, probably more next year. And the tricky part is that Russia's main source of revenue are oil and gas sales, which for decades went to Europe, went to Europe. But Europe, in response to the war in Ukraine, has drastically reduced its reliance on Russian gas. Uh, uh, so uh, this is cutting into the amount of revenue that the Russian state takes in. They would like to reroute this gas to sell to China, and China is buying more. But Russia lacks the infrastructure to deliver the volume of gas to China that they previously could deliver to uh, Europe. Right. So in the short run, Russia really faces a, a difficult transition period. And in the long run, Russia is much weaker in its economic relations with China, you know, a single country with a huge economy, than it is dealing with Europe which is multiple countries that can be played off against each other. So Russia could have much more leverage over Europe um, than they can over China. But to the extent that Europe weans itself off from Russian gas, uh, then Russia will have much less leverage. And, and you mentioned China. Do you think there are any like parallels between um, Russia and Ukraine and, and now China and Taiwan? Well, yeah, many people argue that Xi Jinping looks at Russia's failure to earn a quick victory in Ukraine in the response of the West and the global community to condemn uh, the Russian invasion and to levy sanctions. Uh, and that, you know, the Ukrainian army has turns out to be very motivated and very willing to fight. Uh, and that this may play into, you know, how she views uh, um, uh, Taiwan. I'm not enough of a Chinese expert mm -hmm. to um, uh, to say anything, you know, clever about that. But uh, you know, one can understand the logic certainly. Okay, and zooming out of Russia for a second, just as a, a professor of political science, what do you think of nationalism in general? Well, it's interesting in the 
late 80s and into the 90s, uh, nationalism was an important force for building democracy in the former Soviet Union. The collapse of the, the Soviet empire, um, the liberation of states in Eastern Europe uh, from Soviet rule uh, was driven by national identities and a quest for sovereignty from the uh, uh, rulers in Moscow. So under this context, nationalism was often seen as a force for good in helping strengthen identities around you know, particular states. Uh, what we see today is nationalism often being used to justify isolation and um, sovereignty and the rejection of democracy and universal values uh, in a lot of these more autocratic uh, countries where Russian nationalism uh, now is really used to try to bolster autocratic government, to try to repress any liberal tendencies, uh, attitudes towards same-sex marriage, LGBTQ, gender relations. Uh, and this is a, a pattern that we see across many autocracies like Venezuela, Hungary, Turkey, Russia, and across the former Soviet space. So nationalism can be a force for good, but I think at the moment it's really more a force for buttressing autocracy. Right, it depend, depends how you interpret it and its pros and cons. Um, so we're running low on time, so this will be our final question. Um, I was curious uh, to know what impact you believe the, the war will have on Know, Russia, Ukraine, um, Europe in general for the for the coming years, and you know, does that depend on you know how that what the outcome of the war is? The stakes here are very high. Um, one can imagine a scenario where there's a Ukrainian breakthrough uh, that allows them to seize land, uh, but that's not likely. A more likely outcome is continued fighting on the ground uh, with large numbers of casualties on both sides, continued Russian bombing of uh, Ukrainian cities, and a war of attrition where both sides will fight until they're sufficiently exhausted uh, that they're willing to agree to a ceasefire. And agreeing to a ceasefire is far from reaching a settlement. And at the moment, Russia is not willing to agree to anything that would give them less territory than they had prior to February 24th. And Ukraine is certainly in no mood uh, to grant uh, um, any compromises or any territorial concessions, and in general would like to take back territory that was uh, taken by Russia uh, in 2014, 2015, and 2016. So it's hard to see how this could end quickly. And uh, Putin is hoping that the West will become distracted, um, that support for Ukraine will um, decline in the future, and that Russia's superior numbers uh, will come into play and be decisive. Uh, but Ukraine has morale. They're better organized. They have more to lose. 
and they seem much more willing to fight. So Putin's greater numbers might not bring the result that he would like. Um, I wish I could be more specific, uh, but a lot depends on what happens on the ground. It's kind of like the quality versus quantity, right? Where it's like if the quality of your morale and fighting. Exactly. I mean, the Russian soldiers have suffered great casualties in part um, because they uh, are unwilling to take the kinds of risks that would lead to territorial gains that could ultimately you know, make Russia's job easier, whereas you know, the Ukrainians have been much more flexible, much more willing to take chances. And you know, at, at the end of the day, most Russian soldiers are, are not as motivated as mm-hmm, the Ukrainian mm-hmm. soldiers. That was very insightful. Thank you, Professor. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Professor Fry. And to all our listeners, re- remember to stay hungry. Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs>